kind of important to highlight is uh, that most people, usually when we get in, interested in Buddhist meditation um, or Buddhism or Dharma or whatever, you, however you think about it, is a lot of times we can get into this, uh, and I've been there, and I think we all go through this at some point. I think it's a bit of a trap where we think that um, we're trying to know something that we don't already know. You know, so like the Buddha knew something, uh, Buddhists knew something, the Dharma teachers know something. There's some bit of information that's, that's meant to be known here. And if we only could know what that was, then that would mean we'd be enlightened or we'd be fully awake or whatever you think you're going to get out of this, right? Some kind of event that's going to happen on the other side of that event. Life is going to make sense. Things are going to be easy. You're not going to struggle anymore. There's going to be no more stress, no more difficult emotions. Uh, and I think that that's um, not going to happen. Um, so in many ways, Buddhism is kind of a bit obsessed uh, with kind of understanding the ultimate nature of reality. And sometimes the way that it's presented, like the Buddha knew the ultimate nature of reality, maybe things like the unconditioned, uh, true mind, uh, these kinds of ideas, so that there's a way in which um, we can get... Um, and I think I went through this. I think I think when you get into the practice, there's no way to avoid this kind of thinking. Because honestly, that is a bit how it's presented, isn't it? Um, and so uh, a presentation where we're trying to just, you know, understand how the whole universe, how the mind, how things actually work. Um, but really, actually, if you look, what we're going to look at today, um, the original text and really the, the Buddha himself, Siddhartha Gautama, I don't even really like calling him the Buddha. Um, was really interested in how you live your life. That was his main uh, teaching. That was his main purpose. That was his main his main concern, uh, what we could call your ultimate concern. And I think that probably all of us have an ultimate concern, um, which is what what is it when you when you put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day, when you wake up in the morning, when you're beginning to think about what you need to do, what you have to do, what you should do. Um, you know, whether we have bills to pay, we have kids to take care of, we have problems to solve, we all have those things. But I think I, underneath it all, our ultimate concern is how, how do I want to live this life? Um, how do I live my life moment by moment? Uh, how do I be in this body? How do I be in this world? How do I be in this culture? Uh, and so the Buddha was very interested in uh, how we live. So really, it's a practice, it's a philosophy, it's a psychology, it's an ethics, it's a contemplative training that is all geared for that. And if we look at his, um, if we look at the fourth noble truth, which we won't get to, uh, we'll get to, get to it a little bit, the Eightfold Path, as I'm sure you're familiar. Um, if you look at the Eightfold Path, which is his, really his primary teaching, it's actually not the Four Noble Truths, it's really the Eightfold Path. You know, if you were to sit down with the Buddha uh, and ask him, hey, like, I really like what you have to say. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk a few times. Like, what do I do? Well, you know, what's going on here? I want to do this thing you offer. He would always tell you to cultivate the Eightfold Path. That was always his his primary instruction. And if you look at the Eightfold Path, it's not mystical, esoteric, ultimate nature of the universe items. It's like speech. It's like how you talk to people, right? They're not really, uh, they're not very mystical ideas. It's how you, how you speak, how you act, how you live in the world, your actions. It's, it's not a very 
mystical idea. Um, what you do for work, you know, like your livelihood, like that's one of his teachings. It's like, what do you do? How do you, how do you sustain uh, life? How do you survive? Is really the probably the proper term. Um, and as I'm sure you know, trying to survive in modern day America is actually no picnic for most of us. Um, you know, how do we, how do we pay our bills? How do we make money? How do we, how do we find a job? Maybe that's even a little bit meaningful to us. How do we find actual work that we don't totally hate? Right. Um, how do we find work where we can actually work 40 hours a week and afford to have a house and apartment and, uh, food and those things. It's like, for most people, that's their ultimate concern. You know that, that and that, that that is a sad state of affairs, but that's that's the world that we live in. Most people um, doing practices like this are not really uh, an option. Most people aren't spending four hours on a Saturday uh, learning about these ancient teachings and how they can apply. And most people are getting up trying to figure out how the hell they're going to pay their rent. Um, and so that and so if you're one of those people, if you're if you're kind of in that territory, I know that uh, if I'm honest. Um, probably the biggest thing that takes up stress or worry concern in my mind is money. You know, I got, I have a couple kids and, you know, I, I, I have to uh, figure out how to solve that. Um, and so um, it's in my best interest. It behooves me to look at these teachings and more in the sense of how I live my life um, because it's, well, it's a path factor. It's about livelihood. It's about survival. Um, and what it does is it brings me into the Eightfold Path more. It brings me more into my life uh, and, and say, am I going to take this on as a practice? Am I going to practice oh, this right livelihood or this uh, survival? Or do I feel, and most people feel this way, they feel like that's a hindrance to their practice. I can't go on retreat or I can't sit or I can't do the things that I want to do because I'm so busy having to work all the time. So when you start to... Uh, Think about Dharma practices as how we live. Uh, it comes alive a little bit more. And this whole idea of trying to understand the ultimate nature of reality, or um, it's really kind of a big bit of a, a bit of a distraction, don't you think? Let's just rewind a bit and and look at the the four noble truths. As I'm sure I would imagine many of you have seen this teaching before, but really, basically, it's not the standard presentation is as follows: is that you know they're suffering. First noble truth. Uh, sometimes it's translated as life is suffering, which is a terrible way to think about things. There is suffering. So there is the cause of suffering. There is the end of suffering. And then there is the path that leads to the end of suffering. You've probably heard this before. 99% of books on Buddhism that you're going to get anywhere are going to give you that presentation. Uh, notice, uh, as I say that, there's one word that shows up in all four, and that word is suffering, um, which is not a really uh, happy, bright, shiny idea, is it? Um, and I think that that's a mistake of the tradition, because when you look at the original teaching, uh, if you look at the original text and, and the, um, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, which is uh, actually understood and taught as the Buddha's first teaching, you probably heard that, the first teaching the Buddha ever gave was the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. Guess what? Totally not true. The Buddha, that was not his first teaching. In fact, he probably didn't develop the ideas uh, around the Four Noble Truths until probably maybe close to halfway through his teaching career. So he was probably teaching for 
20, 25 years before these ideas came came around. Um, and this is also, you know, if you look at the Holly Cannon original teachings, which 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 in the, which were very fortunate, I feel very fortunate in the last 150 years, modern scholarship, people are able to look at these texts from a historical perspective, from an academic perspective, from a, a philological perspective, and philology is just a study of words. So understanding what the words mean, understanding how the words are put together. And, you know, in modern culture, we we, we have a lot of intelligent devices and a lot of intelligent ways to, to look at ancient texts. And actually, a lot of the tools that they use to study the Pali Canon are the same tools that Christian academics use to study the Bible. Uh, so there, there's a whole, um, we have a whole modern way of looking at ancient texts to try to um, pull out of those texts what is probably most accurate and what is most useful. And I think that's great um, because we want to make sure, we want to remember that um, Buddhism, of course, if we, if, 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 there's no argument about it. It's a world religion. We're not going to get away from that. But um, it's a very different approach because the Buddha, he says this all the time, ahipasako means come and see for yourself. The Buddha's constantly trying to remind us, hey man, just because I said it, or just because somebody else said it, or just because it was written down in some book, don't believe it. In fact, don't believe anything that anybody says. Don't even believe me right now, uh, unless you've come and seen for yourself. So it's almost like he put that in there, like just as a reminder of like, hey, like, you know, people get strange people get manipulative people get controlling and that we we don't want to hold up and i and i just want to say that i'm not i'm not trying to do this at all this morning i'm not trying to hold this up but these, these are sacred texts that we should adhere to um we should investigate them we should check them out we should challenge them you know we shouldn't take we shouldn't take all this hook line and sinker um we should look at them and say well i don't know and and look at them i want like a conversation and really, the, the analogy that I would use the most is I look at these uh, polytexts as more like a map. So today, we're, we're looking at two specific maps. We're going to look at mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is a map to the, the to our experience, to the human experience. So we have this map, which includes our body. We live in the body, the somatic body, the sensate body. We have five senses. We have, a, we have a physical body, we have a nervous system, we have emotions that are in the body. And that's ground zero, you know, you think you live in, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, or wherever you, wherever you live, you don't live there. You know, I don't live in Colorado, I really live inside my body. That's ground zero. So he starts with, with okay, let's take, let's, let, let's use this map, let's, let's take a moment by moment exploration, let's take a look at this body, let's check out what's going on in here. Uh, he also, so we have a body, and within that body, uh, within the human experience is what's called feeling or feeling tone, Vedana, which is uh, noticing that the the body system, the sensory experience of the body uh, it, uh, is a big range of, there's pain on one hand, we have pain in the body, have you noticed pain in your body? Uh, and we also have pleasure. And we have pain and pleasure. We live, that's the ultimate, actually that's the primary dichotomy that we are dealing with as humans is pain and pleasure. And we want to, I don't know if you've noticed, but the pain is what we want to get rid of. Let's get rid of the pain and let's get the pleasure, right? That's basically like our, actually the American economy, the entire capital system is built on that, right? Get get rid of the things you don't want, get the things that you want, right? Like, 
I mean, isn't that that's what drives that drives everything? That's what's driving the body, and that's survival reasons. We're not you're not going to stop doing that. We're not going to get rid of that, nor would we want to. But the Buddha's really brilliant to say, okay, like your organism does have some pre-programmed behaviors that you're going to have to learn to live with. You're not going to be able to switch the wires on that one, right? So, and also one thing just to, to just say that I that you've probably heard that I'll just push back against because I think it's a Western invention. It's really an invention of the Western Vipassana movement. Is a lot of times you'll hear there's pleasure, there's pain, and there's neutral. Right? That's actually not really very accurate because that, that's like three things. So that's basically saying, well, there's pleasure, there's pain, and there's neutral. There's these three options. It's really actually not that way. It's more of a spectrum. There's pleasure and there's pain, and there's everything in the middle. So there's pleasure, like there's pain on like a number 10 level, like excruciating pain. And then there's pain at like number one pain, which is uh, still painful. But so this, this middle zone, um, actually, technically, the term is neither. So sometimes we're in the experience where I'm not feeling a lot of pleasure. I'm not feeling a lot of pain. So they just conveniently call it neutral. But that's not really quite right. It's just that it's it, it's uh, it's neither, or probably what it is mostly experientially. The way that I experience it is that I'm is that it's indifferent. It's like you know, if you're eating some bland, if you're hungry, uh, and you're eating some bland breakfast uh, food, maybe you're on retreat and you're having some bland oatmeal, and they don't have a lot of honey and granola to add to it, you know, and you're just eating it. You're indifferent about it. You know what I mean? You don't, it's not pleasant. It's not painful. It's not enjoyable. It, it's not a big deal. You're mostly just eating it because you're like, I probably should get some food in my body, right? Like I'm not getting a charge off of this. And so, and, and that's a kind of a range too. We can get indifferent about things. Um, and this is important to occupy this zone because what we find is that when we're indifferent, what happens is we're likely to get apathetic. We kind of don't care or we can kind of get bored. Or, or we can fall into things like meaninglessness or um, despair even. So the other thing that's interesting about the neutral indifferent zone is that unlike pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain have intensification, right? So there can be unpleasantness and it can get, it can go from unpleasant to totally painful. So there's a big spectrum in, in pain. There's also a big spectrum in pleasure. Uh, indifferent doesn't have that. Like you can't be more or less indifferent about something, right? You know what I mean? It's not like like boredom. It's like you're bored. You're not like really bored or just a little bit bored. You're just kind of in that indifferent space. The word that we would use probably in the Zen tradition does a good job of this is it's ordinary. You know, and for most of us, if we're honest, life is a pretty ordinary experience, right? Most of the time you wake up, you you know, you kind of mill around the kitchen, you put some things away, you're waiting to do this, you do and another word we might use is mundane. You know, that that's much of life. And so a lot of times when we're in those spaces, we're not actually connected to what's going on. We're we're thinking about what we need to do later, we're thinking about what we did yesterday. We kind of space out. So a lot of times we're not really present, we're not actually really mindful. We're not really in touch with what's going on moment by moment when things are kind of new, they're neither or, or ordinary because we don't find it to be very interesting. We're not really engaged. And that's where we kind of, you might notice that's where you're kind of wandering around in your mind. So we can, we can use mindfulness and we can, we can start to observe uh, how we're feeling 
uh, pleasant, pain, comfort, discomfort, and just noticing how we react to that. How do I react to that? Um, so that, you know, that's a huge, there's all kinds of teachings here. There's 12 links of dependent origination, all the teachings on the second noble truth, which is we'll, we'll link these up as we move through the day. Because I, I, I probably would, 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 would guess, and I'm probably right, that you notice that when things are unpleasant, you want to push that away. Uh, and when things are pleasant, you want to have that. Right. And that's where this craving, a tanha reactivity kicks in and, and can cause all kinds of problems for us. It's really what addiction is. Right? Addiction is a strategy to feel better, to feel less painful. Um, and it's not such a great strategy, turns out. Uh, and so we have these we have these bodies, we have these feeling tones, we have these mental states, the state of the mind, uh, confusion, attachment, worry, contentment. Um you know, which is which I think of all the foundations of the mindfulness is kind of the hardest one to recognize. It's kind of like the filter. How do I filter experience? So if I if I wake up, um, if I go to bed late uh, and I wake up, I don't get a great night's sleep. <clears throat> uh, maybe I'm a little bit grumpy. I'm irritated, uh, and I wake up and I pop on my my filter of aversion. And I walk out of my bedroom into my kitchen and I look around my house and all the, all I can notice is everything that's wrong. I don't really like our kitchen chairs. My kids didn't put their shoes away. Uh, you know, there's clutter over here. Uh, someone left the light on. Uh, the dog's water bowl spilled all over the place. And everything I see is wrong and bad and I want it to be different. I'm like, oh man, this sucks, right? And is that true? No. What's really going on is I'm taking my mind state and I'm projecting it onto a reality. Right? You ever notice when you're in a bad mood, everything's wrong? And when you're in a good mood, nothing's wrong? What's going on there, right? What's going on there is your, your mind state, the state of your mind, you're projecting that mind state onto everything else. And you're not really knowing that's what you're doing. Right, and then what happens is instead of instead of knowing that oh shit I have a lot of aversion in my mind, instead of knowing that and working with that, what I end up doing is is, is I project under the conditions, and then I become the conditions that I'm projecting on. So, I live in the wrong house. Or everything's just like off, uh, and then I feel bad, and I feel bummed, and then I get then I get caught into thinking about all the choices that I made and how I should have done this and I shouldn't have done that. And actually this moment, my life would actually be better now if I had made better choices in the past, but I didn't make better choices in the past. Uh, and, and that's why the present sucks. And actually I, I generally make bad choices anyway. And so therefore my life is kind of a mess. And uh, this whole big thing of life not being meaningful and not going the way that I want is really, really my fault because I'm just kind of a stupid person who makes bad choices. And and then, you know, and I'm just suffering, right? I'm just like lots. In, and the one thing that's going on there, there's lots of me going on, right? And really what's going on is I just, I'm just, I just have a version in my mind. That's actually what the, what's going on, right? And so maybe it would be in my best interest to just kind of be aware of the aversion in my mind and try to work with that rather than try to get into the content of everything that's, that's wrong within my general vicinity. Right, and so we have the body, the feeling, these mental states, and then we have thoughts or ideas or concepts, which are the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is a huge territory. But really, it's 
it's it's it's it's that ideas it's thinking it's concepts um and you know we we and if we're honest this is what makes it so hard is that's where most people live most people most of us we don't live inside of our body uh, we don't live inside of awareness of our feeling tone we don't live inside an awareness of our mental states we just are really really living in the in our mind and whatever you know it's like your mind is almost like a social media news feed you just keep scrolling looking for something and it turns out most of it's all garbage anyway so it's like the mind is like you know the bottomless feed have you ever gotten to the bottom of your mind never once and i've been practicing for almost 30 years never once during meditation has my mind ever said to me dave sorry man i got i got nothing fresh out why don't you just enjoy the rest of your meditation i'm I'm just going to need to tap out and take a break here because i got nothing for you that's never happened once it's always got something it's always got some unhelpful comment to make about how this moment is going right never seems to never seems to come to the end of that it's almost as if it can't help itself right so i can bring awareness to that i can observe that i actually can uh, I have agency over that. I, I, I have, um, this is where I think the practice gets exciting is that we do have the ability to overcome, to recognize and to overcome these kind of what I would call destructive forces in the mind. Uh, and I also have the ability to recognize and to cultivate constructive forces in my mind. Um, and that's a, man, that is a very encouraging idea right you, you this is this is what you can do um so th- that's a map it's not like do you believe in the four foundations of mindfulness do you believe everything i said is this sort of what the buddhists believe it's like no not at all it's like that's that's not the right that's not the right approach the right approach is oh cool dave just gave me a map the buddha just gave us this map with these four items that we can use to kind of observe experience that's pretty helpful Okay, cool. So now, now let me sit and bring awareness to my breath. Let me sit and bring awareness to my body. Let me see. Is there pleasant feelings and painful feelings in the body? Oh, yeah, there is, actually. Do I like the pleasant feelings? Oh, boy, I really do. Do I really want to get rid of the unpleasantness and the discomfort? Man, I really do, actually. I hate, I hate this stuff, right? It's like so it's okay so now we're this is now we're practicing now we're just we're learning to observe our mind body system moment by moment and seeing that there's a that there's a momentum there's an evolution that there's you know your your living organism uh you don't forget you are a mammal animal at the end of the day the earth did actually build you of course there's lots of debate about that shit, but i think if you're at all interested in science science would say no we we the earth actually made us right like that's crazy right so we so we do have we have what they would call another way to think about the word dharma is that you do have a nature there's a there's a natural uh the organism has a nature and the nature of the organism is to be sensory to to live through senses to feel and to the 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 feeling is what is going to drive the feeling is the the driver of behavior. So the primary driver of the human experience is to the drive is to acquire that which is enjoyable, to get rid of that which is unpleasant. 
Now, of course, when we were hunters and gatherers, this probably wasn't such a big deal. But, you know, the whole getting pleasure and getting away from pain uh, dichotomy in the modern world, it's, it's, it's obviously way past its sell-by date. It's, not, it's actually more of a problem now than it is a help because right, of all the options we have now. Um, so again, these, these, these are maps. So when we look at how do we apply those to these, uh, what's called the Four Noble Truths, I'll use the word Four Noble Truths because that's the way we think about them. So I usually will use the classic terms um, so you know what I'm talking about, but I, I don't think that they're uh, nobly true uh, because that just, truth means I'm supposed to either believe or not believe. This word truth, actually, interestingly enough, um, the Buddha never speaks of truth in this kind of way. He, When you look at the word truth, um, satcha, um, if you, even if you even if you have an iPad or if you if you do these little games I've done, like if you do a word search, like let's just say the Samyutanikaya, which is a you know, five huge volume of the, of the Pali Canon, you can do a word search and put the word satcha in and it'll show you all the different times it's used. Um, 90 to 95 percent of the time, truth is used as a moral or ethical virtue of speech. Am I being true truthfulness? Right. That's how it's it's really uh, taught. Is that uh, you know it's about being honest, right? Like don't lie. You know, it's like that simple. When the Buddha talks about satcha, he's talking about truthfulness as kind of a quality, an ethical quality, a virtue of speech, not capital T, as in this is the truth, which to me reeks of the whole God thing. Uh, in fact, you know, the word noble truth um, makes me cringe slightly to some degree because it totally reeks of religion. So, um, you know, that for those of us, some of us have not had great experiences with religion, or maybe we come to Dharma, it's not uncommon to come to the practice because you're actually trying to get away from all that. And then all of a sudden you're trying to get away from all that and now you're just getting another version of that which for some people is sort of like for me that was a struggle i was like nobly true like wait a minute i thought the buddha was not into this whole truth business so they're really uh whether you whether they're true or whether they're noble let's just kind of politely put that aside we don't need to get into all that right now but really the question is how can you use the map of these truths or tasks how, how is this going to help you that's really the question is how is this going to help you and so we can see that um the first one uh is this word dukkha i'm sure you've heard this word before uh that, that there is dukkha and that's sort of the buddhist general assessment it's like uh you know we we get we were born we get sick we get old we die um sometimes we don't get what we want have you ever wanted something and not gotten it that's dukkha has something ever happened to you that you really wish didn't happen have you ever lost anything that you really cared about? Have you ever had to come into contact with things? You know, yeah, these, this is this is like this shit happens every day. So that's his definition of dukkha. So how we would get to the end of that is insane to me. So the question is, he says, you can fully know that uh, parinya. He says, this is this is you. You can live your life. So as a mindfulness practice, we could say to bear in mind. You can bear and you could, if you chose to, bear in mind. Uh, remember that this is going that you're gonna. Um, this is gonna be part of part and parcel to the human experience. You know, you're gonna have you're gonna have an appointment on your calendar today that's gonna be canceled. 
You know, you're just gonna, you're, you, you, maybe you had a job today, you find out today you don't have the job anymore. You know, this is, this is just the reality of reality, right? So we're not going to come to the end of that. We're not trying to understand that so that doesn't bother. That's really where the whole project begins, is to embrace dukkha. We could call it suffering if you want. That's fine. Um, it's a really hard word to translate. Stress, suffering, everything that you wish wasn't happening and everything that you wish didn't happen would fall under the category of dukkha which for most of us is a pretty big list. Um, you know, I have a huge, huge, tremendous list of things that I wish were different. Uh, and so uh, we were, and so that's part of the body. Like, I mean, uh, tell your body to not get sick. Tell your body to not get old. Um, so dukkha is really, if you look at it in mathematical terms, it's the fixed term. This is kind of, it's a strict reality that we live in. And it's a characteristic. It's also talked away. This is this is a characteristic of our human experience, uh, and it, sometimes it's pointed to. And, and I find this to be helpful. It's that feeling that we have, this kind of low grade feeling we have that something's off. Have you ever felt that way? Something feels a bit off. Something feels a bit not quite right. I don't really feel like I fit into this life, culture, society. Uh, that's Duca. So he he's really doing us a favor by normalizing that right out of the gate. He's like, here, just before we get started, y'all, just want to let you know that there's this thing that you've probably noticed that's kind of here to stay. So we're going to have to just begin our practice by recognizing and acknowledging that stress is going to be part of our experience. There's going to be some struggle. There's going to be some difficulty. You know, people you care about are going to die. There's going to, this whole life thing is going to be rough. And it's going to be rough for everybody. And this is really, I think, where the basis of compassion comes in. It's like a recognition of a shared humanity. Right? It's not just me. Sometimes we feel that way. I know I felt that way at times. Like, I'm the only person who's having this experience. Everybody else is totally happy. Everybody else is totally excited with their life. Everybody else is totally getting what they want, totally enjoying their experience. But me, I'm just a miserable son of a bitch who just can't seem to get it together. Maybe you felt this way at times. Totally not true. <laughs> you know, totally not true. But the big thing about it that's so interesting is that when it comes to this dukkha reality, um, as a culture, what we mostly do is we exercise a great deal of denial, you know, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do. The Buddha is saying, don't deny this. This is, embrace this, right? So that's really this first, what I would prefer to call them, and maybe, maybe we'll call them that from here out today. This is the first task. It's not the first truth. It's something, you know, whether you know that or not. So maybe you know that you're going to get sick and you're going to die. Maybe you know that you're not going to always get what you want. Maybe you know that you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose relationships, money. You know, you, you probably already all know that. But does knowing that help you when it happens? Maybe, maybe not. It's not about knowing that, it's about knowing how. So mindfulness in the first the first task is to is to know how to handle, to embrace, to not suffer so much about, to accept, to acknowledge, and to not let that throw you off, to not let that get in the way of living your life, to not that let that get in the way of thriving, of being happy, of going after the things that you want. You know, don't let it bring you down. It's okay. 
we all have this it's not it's, it's okay you can you can move on really what it is to me in in a colloquial sense this word that gets a lot of attention now when we embrace dukkha and we don't let it throw us off what we're really developing is resilience you know so we're not trying to put an end to dukkha we're just trying to become more resilient in the face of it does that make sense right and, and the good thing is you can do that. That's the other thing I like about this. It's much more practical, much more pragmatic. That is something that you could actually do. You can become more resilient. I'm sure many of you have, right? I bet you there's things that used to really bother you, that you used to really struggle with, that maybe they don't, that doesn't get you so much anymore. You know, and that, that to me is a great measuring device of Dharma practice, right? I've become more resilient. I'm more kind to myself. I'm more caring. I'm more understanding. Uh, and so, in many ways, I mean, this first task is like, man, this is like the, this is the thing that we need to be doing, instead of thinking that we need to be getting rid of that, right? Which is what the which is what the standards says. There's there's dukkha. There's the cause of dukkha. You know, it's like this always this this thing always really bothered me. It never made sense to me. And I mostly, to be honest with you, always just thought because I I'm not the smartest knife in the drawer, and I've grew up, I didn't do good in school, I had learning disabilities. I mostly just thought that I was stupid and that I didn't understand it. So, you know, when I was a young kid, my sister my sister was killed in a car accident, which caused lots of suffering for my family. Uh, I had a girlfriend who was killed in a car accident when I was 18, tragic loss. And so I had all this suffering in my life. And now I'm being told that the suffering was caused by craving. How the fuck did that happen? How did craving cause my sister to get smashed in a car and die when she was 15 years old? Like, how did that, how does that even actually work? And then, you know, you talk to the Dharma teacher and, or you talk to somebody about it and they give you some kind of, they dharma explain that to you. They're like, well, it's not really the fact that, it's the fact that you miss her and that you're clinging and that you want this person back in your life. That's what's causing the suffering. And I was always like, fuck that, dude. That did not make sense to me at all. So also now it's done, okay, so now it's my fault too. Not only do I have to deal with this tragic loss and I'm suffering because of this tragic, oh, now it's also, and it's also my fault. Cool, great, thanks. Now I feel even fucking worse. Not only am I suffering, but now I'm actually suffering wrong. I don't even know how to, I, I don't even know how to suffer right. And I thought I was a loser before. Now I'm really totally fucked here. I am, and, and so... That this is that this for me the reason why I teach this class and I get on my soapbox a little bit. This is this shit, you know. This this presentation confused and tortured me for years in my practice. You know, it just didn't make sense. So what happens is so so we don't want to do we don't want to put an end to that. We just want to embrace it. Oh man, that was really hard. That was really really painful. Then I meet other people who had loved ones die, and I go oh, you and I connect, and I feel more connected to the world. I feel more connected to other people, and I see that oh wow, lots of people are having this this experience. It's not just me, right? And that takes the sting out of it because when it's just me, painful, right? So what we'll do here. Um, I think that's a good segue. Uh, we'll practice. So here's what we'll do: is what we'll do is we'll, we'll do we'll do a practice, and then we can have some discussion, and then I'll move to the second one. Practice, have a discussion. Third one, have a discussion. So, uh, what we're going to do practice now here together is is so how do we practice mindfulness in the first noble truth? So this is really a, this is really a practice of kindness, a practice of compassion, uh, 
just to give you a bit of a a disclaimer, this is this is not an easy practice at all. What we're about to do, um, uh, so it's really about, and so dukkha, this dukkha is really part part of it is, is the first foundation of mindfulness, the body, and really what it is is, and I'll talk about these four. Uh, this is this has been the work of Stephen Batchelor and kind of the work I've done as an an academic of early Buddhist thought is really what we would call but what kind of mindfulness this is. This is an existential mindfulness. So I think the Buddhist endeavor begins with an existential awareness uh, of here I am. I'm a person living in a world. Things have happened. Things are going to happen. How do I feel about this? What, what, so it's really about embracing our existential dilemma. I'm in this body. I don't know how long I'm going to be in this body. I don't even know where this body is going to go. There's so much that we don't know. Right? So so how do we become aware of that? How do we acknowledge that? That can be quite scary. But it's also, it's how it is. So we embrace that. And so what makes that easier to embrace is just to say, well, whatever is going on, I need to have a kind relationship with this body. I need to have compassion. I need to understand that this is, this is an existential dilemma. This is my. This is actually my ultimate concern, and my ultimate concern is: what am I supposed to do with this life? Why am I even here? And the thing that's hard about that is like that's your job. Like that's all our job. It's like to try to sort that out. Nobody can sort that out for you. We can talk to each other. We can share about this. We can read about this. There's all kinds of philosophy. There's lots of different ways to explore this. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to put your head down on that pillow and have to feel maybe good or uh, feel an appropriate degree of contentment. It's like, okay, um, you, you, nobody has to have that experience but you. So it's probably in your best interest to kind of sort that out, or at least to begin to sort that out. Does that make sense? Dharma uh, is really a courageous commitment to trying to live your life one moment at a time, as if there was another option anyway. Right, like that, you know, you're 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 stuck. That's what's happening. Any, anyway, you might as well get on board, because that's really that's the re, the strictness of reality. But again, it's that constant courageous commitment to come back, to come back, to come back, to come back. Uh, and you're never going to master that one, so you might as well keep practicing. Um, and so, uh, to just look at the the original text and in the, the the philosophical framework. So sometimes people would say that the Buddhist teachings is the teachings of cause and effect, or teachings on causality, which is actually again not really quite right. He doesn't really teach cause and effect. He teaches interdependence, which is a lot more complicated. And if you look at the way that the so we have their suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path that leads to the end of suffering, if you think about that from a cause and effect perspective, even that's backwards, because dukkha is the effect. So they're saying dukkha is the effect. What is causing the dukkha? Craving is causing the dukkha, right? You have nibbana or nirodha, third noble truth, the end of suffering, is the cause. What is the effect? The effect is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. So if I cultivate the Eightfold Path, the effect of that will be Nibbana. If I overcome this craving, get rid of this craving, the effect will be the end of Dukkha. So they, so, so right out of the gate, the whole system's kind of screwed up because it's inverted. So they start with the effect. And if you know cause and effect, you don't start with the effect, you start with the cause. 
So that's that's a problem right then and there, just just like logically. The reason why that bothers me, uh, first of all, as I don't think it's there in the original text, is that the Buddha seems to go out of his way time and time again to really have a precise, very sophisticated way of explaining uh, the nature of consciousness, the 12 links of dependent origination, Nami Rupa Vinyana, the five aggregates. The teachings are brilliant. And so if that's the case, then why is his most profound teaching totally illogical? It's just everything else is so brilliant. Why is this one so clumsy? So again, if we look at the other way around, um, which I think is what's in the original text, is that dukkha doesn't have a cause. Um, dukkha is the condition, it's the baseline existential condition. And what arises out of that, because life, let's just say, is dukkha, because life is so hard, that gives rise to reactivity or this word tanha, which is usually translated as craving, which I don't think is the best translation because craving to me implies too much wanting. So craving or tanha is really shorthand for greed, hatred, and confusion. So because life is hard, because I'm in this experience, the word actually for the second noble truth isn't really tanha, it's uh, samudaya, which means to arise. So what the Buddha is saying is we're in this mind-body system, we're in this experience, and, and things arise. And what arises is a kind of reactivity, right? And what, what is the reactivity, right? If you look at the 12 links of dependent origination, uh, the, what is the condition for craving to arise? Well, the condition is actually feeling, which is also the second foundation of mindfulness. Second amount foundation of mindfulness, second noble truth, totally, just, totally connected. So he's saying that, uh, so he's not saying that A causes B. So again, this is a little bit not as sophisticated. So causality would be A causes B. Because there's dukkha, craving arises, which is actually true. But what's actually more brilliant is he's not saying A causes B, dukkha causes craving. He's saying that B is dependent upon A to arise. Interdependence is way different than causality. So it's not A causes B, it's that B is dependent upon A to arise. So the condition for which reactivity, what it needs to arise is it needs, there needs to be a human body, there needs to be a human experience, there needs to be a feeling tone. And so if, 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 the, if the experience of the human system is that of pain, the condition is now aversion will arise based on that condition. So there has to be a body. There has to be an unpleasant feeling tone for that aversion to arise. That B needs that A. And of course, that's not going to stop. Like you're in a body, you're going to have unpleasantness. That's how it goes. And so out of that condition arises a kind of aversion, not wanting. If that feeling tone is pleasant, what arises? So greed, wanting, greed, craving, uh is is not causing suffering so much but it's arising based on a condition Does that make sense you see how a a causes b and b dependent upon a is a very different kind of way especially in systems theory it's a lot more complicated than that and let's be honest life is complicated so because we are in this existential dilemma as human beings what's going to happen is this reactivity is going to is going to arise and it's not a failure. It's not you're gonna the goal isn't to try to cut that out and to not do that anymore. The goal is to practice with that. 
right? So he talks about, as much as he talks about dukkha, he also defines craving in the second task. In the Pali Canon, he says, this is craving. Uh, uh, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving is repetitive. Uh, craving for crave, craving to have, craving to get rid of. Um, he, and he talks about it as the arising of craving. It's a repetitive arising. It obsessively indulges in this and that. Have you ever felt like you're obsessively indulging in this and that? And this and that can be shorthand for all kinds of things. So it's, again, it's not your fault. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not a problem. It's just something that you are um, trying to be mindful of. And so what he says, well, he, he tells you what it is and he tells you what to do. He says, craving can be let go of. It can be let go of. So, so we can see this arising with mindfulness. Uh, we can, and we cannot be tricked or swayed by it. Right? You know, think about how seductive this is. How many times in your life have you wanted something and you really believed, oh, I want this thing to happen when I get this job, when I get this relationship? I'll be happy. I'll never, I'll be happy forever. Has that ever worked once? Have you ever gotten anything ever once that has made you happy forever as a result of getting it? No. Then why is it the next time that that happens again? We believe it the next time. I have no evidence to suggest. Like I totally believe everything I'm saying right now. But yeah, at some point today, I'm going to want to get something or want to get rid of something. And I think when I get this and get rid of that, I'll be happy forever. Like I continue to fall for the trick over and over again. It's actually kind of funny, right? We're like, no, no, I'm going to, this is going to happen. You know, it's almost like, I'll never ask for, just give me this one thing, God. I'll never ask for anything else ever again. And you get it. You're like, well, that was pretty good. If you really want to uh, look at this from a scientific point of view, um, there's a book written by a man named Robert Wright. And the book is called Why Buddhism is True. And the book is worth buying for the first chapter alone. The first chapter, he does an analogy on the movie, The Matrix, which is actually, if you've ever seen The Matrix or The Matrix Trilogy, it's a Dharma movie. Um, it's called, the first chapter is called The Blue Pill and the Red Pill. And so what he's saying, and, he, and, and Robert Wright is not a Dharma guy, he's not a Buddhist uh, thinker. He's actually an evolutionary psychologist who's a professor at Rutgers University who started sitting these Vipassana retreats and started to realize, holy shit, what the Buddha is saying is the same thing that I've learned in my uh, training on evolutionary psychology. So he's like, this, this guy was onto something. Because the, uh, the reactivity system, the craving system, um, is actually designed to, to decay very rapidly. So... Uh, I have craving for some sugar. I go in the other room, I have a bowl of fruity pebbles or frosted flakes or fruit loops. I have little kids in my house, so I have these great cereals. Uh, and and what it does is I I feel satiated, I feel relief. I uh, but then 20 minutes later, it's gone. Have you noticed it? Have you noticed that the, the the cookie or the whatever it is, it it doesn't last long. Well, that's built in because it helps us survive. So if I'm hungry and I eat uh, and I never get hungry again, I'm going to die because I need to keep eating. So the system is designed to, to, to decay rapidly. 
right? It's supposed to decay rapidly because I need to keep eating and I need to keep drinking water. So the satiation from an evolutionary psychology point of view is actually designed to decay rapidly so that I'll re-engage in the behavior again. That makes sense? Now, if you update up to 2023 society in the world that we live in now and in the buffet of options we have and the availability we have for pleasantness is so rampant that that system no longer really works so good. So we're just we're always on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next, on to the, what they call the hedonic treadmill, right? So uh, modern society is like kind of a buffet of addiction behaviors. So this is where mindfulness really becomes our best friend because we can see that like, again, this is really hard to beat into your head, but I'll try. It's not your fault. You. This is how this is how things are this is kind of how the system works so you know you eat an oreo cookie you eat two oreo cookies five minutes later you go back to get two more it's not because you're a failure or that you're lazy or any of these things it's just that like whatever you got out of the first two is worn off right and so what that is that's that's that feeling tone so craving the condition for craving to arise is based on feeling so we are really really and so so if we look at what well, the second foundation of mindfulness what is the second foundation of mindfulness well it's mindfulness of feeling right so number two noble truth recognize the reactivity overcome that reactivity second foundation of mindfulness is brilliant because the feeling tone comes right before the craving and the and the causal chain the interdependent chain of dependent origination so the buddha saying keep an eye on the feeling keep an eye on the feeling keep an eye on the feeling because the feeling is going to be the trigger for the behavior right and again we're not this is a practice this isn't going to stop happening you're you know You'll get better at it. It will. The system will work better over time. But this is kind of what he's trying to get us to see, right? And also, there's also an ethical dimension here. I think that we, um, in fact, this is kind of an interesting little thing I noticed the other day. Um, I have a podcast called Dave Smith Dharma, uh, and I have a, I have a dashboard that I upload my episodes to. Uh, and there's analytics in it that I look at every once in a while. So the, the other day I was just looking at the analytics and it shows all the podcast episodes I've put up there, the titles. And then it has the number one, like the top 10 downloads. And of all the talks that I've ever given, the number one downloaded talk is the second noble truth as harmlessness, which I think is fascinating. Because I remember giving that, it's actually not even that great of a talk, to be honest with you. But I think it's the topic that hooks people is that, Again, this isn't this is very much about ethics because it's about reacting. And again, if I am in a lot of unpleasant feeling physically, probably more psychologically and emotionally, that's when I that's when I'm likely to do something harmful. Right? If I'm irritated, if I'm frustrated, if I'm grumpy, um, then I'm likely to say or do something that I'm going to regret later. Like I said earlier, when I'm happy and when I'm in a good mood and when I'm feeling well, I never say anything mean to anybody ever. 
I never, I never judge myself negatively. So a lot of that reactivity, a lot of the harm, a lot of the violence, a lot of the oppression, a lot of the um, really unethical, harmful things that happen in this world are performed by people who are in this reactive state of mind and body and, and, and it spills out onto other people. As they say again, hurt people, hurt people. And so the world doesn't need more suffering people. So part of it is like, you know, this is why the spreading of the Dharma, I think, is so profound. It's like we really just want to help people, all people, whatever their social or political views are. Let's try to help everybody, right? Come into a bit more happiness, a bit more ability to do that, because this second task is really about recognizing and overcoming, which ironically is the second effort is to recognize and to overcome destructive forces in the mind, which is a mindfulness practice. It's a practice of the second task. It's this is, And this is a kind of mindfulness that's not existential, but a kind of mindfulness that's therapeutic. Right? MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, all the MBI clinical versions of mindfulness are all rooted in everything I just said. They're all about a kind of a way of a self-therapeutic way of recognizing these destructive qualities within and overcoming those, you know, whether it's overcoming our trauma or overcoming addiction or overcoming anything that we pathologize, any mindfulness-based clinical intervention is completely and totally about us being able to be empowered to overcome the internal struggle that we use it in the therapeutic sense, right? Does that make sense? They say that mindfulness has different different functions on different occasions for different purposes. And then this occasion, mindfulness is to try to recognize our feeling tone, recognize our habitual reactivity towards that, and then to overcome that, um, that we use it in the therapeutic sense, right? Does that make sense? All right, we'll move on here to number three. Um, so where do I start here? So, um, Let's just kind of talk about this a little bit from a, a noble truth perspective. So that the so you have, you know, you have this dukkha. You have let's just call it what so we have, we have this suffering that we're trying to embrace. We have this reactivity we're trying to overcome, and and then and the third task is really what that is. Is they're really well linked up. So there's there's actually two terms with the second truth. There's arising, which is samudhiya, and then there's craving. So, but arising gets to more emphasis. So the Buddha is saying that because life is hard, what arises is a, is a reaction to that, which is totally normal and natural. We're not going to do much about that. And then what he wants us to do is to recognize that reactivity in real time and to overcome that. And as soon as we've overcome the reactivity, so, so the two words are arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. You hear this all the time in Buddhist concepts, which is actually, ironically, the Mahasi Sayadaw Burmese system is really, really rooted and based on noticing the arising and passing away, rising with the ember. He actually asks you to say that note, breathing in, arising, breathing out, passing away, which is also impermanence. So um, there's a lot of value, it turns out, in training the mind to see that things are arising and passing away. Well, why is that? Well, if you look at the tasks, the reason why we're being trained to see things arise and pass away is seeing that reactivity also arises and passes away. And so 
what happens is when it arises, it doesn't pass away because we, when it arises, we grab onto it, we cling to it, we fuel it, we, we actually, and that's what's called samsara going round and round and round, and we kind of get caught up in that. If we let that arise, pass away, we have naroda, which is one of the terms of the third noble truth, which means to cease. And the second term, which I think is the better term and the really important term is when the reactivity ceases, that's called nibbana or nirvana. And now this is also Nibbana is the term that the word enlightenment is rooted in or awakening. And I think as Buddhist tradition expanded into Zen, into the very Vajrayana and the seven schools of Tibetan Buddhism, enlightenment, each time it goes through, it gets elevated, 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 elevated to the point where enlightenment is kind of like what I said at the beginning of the class today. It's like enlightenment is understanding the ultimate nature of reality and there's no more suffering. That's sort of the way it's presented, which I think is totally, um, it's, it's just totally inaccurate and really sets us up for lots of frustration and a lot of disappointment. So to some degree, enlightenment has become sort of Buddhist heaven, right? And so we can just chuck the word enlightenment. It's not in the early tradition. It's a much later idea. It's it's playing on the world word of light, of illumination. That's not what's in the early discourse. The word is really awake. Bodhi, Buddha, awake, uh, and also Nibbana or Nirvana. Now, Nibbana is really nothing special. It's pretty ordinary. Uh, it's actually an ancient Indian cooking term, which means that the, the, the pan has been removed from the flame. And when you remove the pan from the flame, it cools down. So Nibbana is about a coolness of the mind, which is a non-reactive mind, a mind that is not being dictated by this craving or tanha. The other thing that's interesting is the shorthand for tanha is these other words we hear about greed, hatred, and confusion, which is what the, so the analogy is, and this is interesting. I'm glad you brought up recovery, Tommy. So the analogy is the second noble truth is all about fire and burning. The third noble truth is all about um, water and cooling. So addiction is burning, recovery is cooling. And so it's about removing the mind from the hot pan or the hot stove of greed, hatred, and confusion, which is what, which is greed, wanting to get the pleasant, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant, that whole thing. It's just, it's a psychological movement. And so Nibbana, we witness the mind that is non-reactive and not only do we witness it, we want now we want to cultivate that. We want to cultivate a cool-mindedness, which is a, probably a nice way to say it. A cool-mindedness, which is also, you know, second noble truth is addiction, which is fire. Third noble truth is cool, which is recovery. A lot of these, these, and also the play on fire and coolness is 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 an analogy that's insanely easy for anybody to understand, right? And also, when you think of that, another thing that's also interesting in terminology is, you know, this word is craving. So this feeling and independent origination, you have feeling based upon, dependent upon feeling is craving. Dependent upon craving is clinging, clinging and grasping. The Pali word is upadana. The word upadana is a term that comes from the Upanishads in the Brahmanical uh, which is a which is a religious with the religious worldview of ancient India that the Buddha lived in. You Upadana was the fire, the sacrificial fires. 
and, and, and of course, in their religious system, it's important to keep the sacrificial fires burning. And Buddha saying, no, you want to put out those fires. So Upadana, it does mean grasping and clinging a little bit. But really what it means, is that it's one of these double terms. It also means to fuel, which I think is the better word. So a lot of times when what, what, it, what we're doing with addiction is, yes, sure, we're clinging and grasping a little bit, but we're fueling. What are we fueling? What psychological fires are you just chucking gasoline on? You know, we were keeping our, if you want to suffer, keep your fires of greed, hatred, and confusion burning. And how do you keep a fire burning? Well, you throw fuel on it. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to defuel, we're trying to starve, we're trying to abandon all these words, let go of, we're trying to, to not stoke our fire which I think from an analogy point of view is not really that, not really that hard to understand. So Nibbana is about a coolness of mind and that's what we want to cultivate, which is also the third great effort to cultivate, to develop constructive, wholesome states of mind. So here Nibbana is a, is a wholesome state of mind. It's a non-reactive state of mind that can be recognized, that can be witnessed, and that can be cultivated. So that's the tree leaning in the better direction. Is the tree leaning towards the fire or is the tree leaning towards the lake? You want your tree to fall into the lake, not into the fire. And so that's what Nibbana is. A, if you want to read more about this, um, there's a really great pamphlet that was written by a, a, a very kind of controversial um, Thai forest monk named um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was... Uh, who was really getting, he wanted to get back to really the original text. He has a monastery in Southern Thailand called Swan Mok. And he wrote a pamphlet in the 80s called Nibbana is for Everyone. You can download it for free, 36 pages or so, not that much, but he really, it's a really, really great teaching because what he does is he takes this idea of Nibbana or enlightenment way off of the pedestal and says, actually, to be honest with you, Nibbana is under your nose 24-7. Right. So again, it's not so much what 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 does what does what causes awakening or what causes nibbana. It's more like what is what needs to happen for nibbana to occur. What is it dependent on? And nibbana is dependent upon your ability to let go of or to abandon that craving and that reactivity. That event needs to happen. If that event happens, you recognize reactivity in the mind. You let that go. Your experience, Nibbana. And really what that is, is that's the hinge in the past. So that's this is this is a big, a big, big movement. And 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 what makes it so we can go from that hinge in the path is actually mindfulness. Right? Mindfulness, you're not gonna do any of that, you're not gonna pull any of this off if you're if there's not mindfulness present. You know, mindfulness is sort of the, the playing field in which this event occurs. We recognize, we embrace life, we embrace the difficulty of life. We see that when we don't do that, we react. We see that we react, we recognize that reactivity. We let that go, gives rise to the experience of Nibbana. We like that, that's content. Go that Go that way. That's where you want to go. And, and, and the interesting thing about this is you can actually track this. You can sit for 30 minutes and this whole cycle probably happened 50, 60 times. 
So this is actually not, this is not a theoretical description. So the Four Noble Truths, again, are not a, three, a theoretical description of reality and how reality works. It's more a prescription to say, here's what you can do. It's asking us to do something. The Buddha is trying to help us do something. He's trying to help us see something. He's not trying to get us to adhere to a dogmatic system of thought. And of course, there is an element of that, of course. You have to understand this stuff a little bit, but that's not the point. Like, you know, even if you, even if you leave here today and you sort of agree with or you believe that I'm telling you the truth, it's not going to help you stop doing this shit. You know what I mean? You know, you're not just going to go, okay, cool. Well, now that I did the thing with Dave, I'll just stop doing that and I'll just be fine. I'll just get on with it. You know, it's like, no, that's not how it works. It'd be nice if that was how it works. Um, but that's not how it works. It's like anything. It's like, you know, someone tells me if I want to lose weight and be healthy, I just need to eat better food and exercise. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do that from now on. It's like, okay, good luck. A little bit harder. It's hard to do that when there's Fruit Loops in the pantry and, you know, ice cream in the freezer. You know, easy, easier said than done. A lot of this stuff is easier said than done. So again, back to the whole effect cause being inverted. If the traditional teaching was that if you... If you cultivate the Eightfold Path, it leads you to the end of suffering, which is Nibbana. But that's the other way around. Nibbana is the trailhead to the Eightfold Path. You know, that's where trailhead, you go to a place, you go hiking. The trailhead is where the path, all the paths begin. That's where Nibbana, Nibbana brings us into the Eightfold Path. So Nibbana brings us into a complete perspective, right view, intentions, words, actions. It brings us into that experience. And as soon as we get kicked back into reactivity, the access to the path is denied. And we're, just, and, and we're caught up in that. However long we're caught up with that, we finally overcome that reactivity or it falls away on its own, which often it does. Sometimes it just falls away on its own. And then we get back to the path. We get back to living. We get back to thriving. We get back to living the meaningful life that we all want to live. And so we modulate between these two. Another just technicality that I'll throw at you that I think is important is when you read the actual text, the actual text of the Four Noble Truths, when he describes Nibbana, he says the traceless fading away of that craving, the abandoning and letting go of it. He doesn't say that what happens in the third truth is that dukkha no longer happens. He says the reactivity no longer happens, which is not no, the standard presentation is suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. So the idea, the end of dukkha is not what's in, that's not how it's written. And you can read it, you can Google this shit, it's everywhere now. It's like not like it's not like I went in there and tinkered around. It's, it, it's clear as day, the translation. Um, so again, you know, we want to, we want what we're really trying to let go of, what we're trying to put an end to, what we're trying to work with is this second, this therapeutic way of overcoming these kinds of destructive forces in the mind, in which there's a whole bunch of them. And there's a range of intensification with those. And then, so then the third task, the third truth, Nibbana, is not an existential kind of mindfulness or a therapeutic mindfulness. It's more of a contemplative mindfulness. It's a, the Nibbana is a contemplative experience. It's a mind that's open that's dynamic, that's present, that's easeful, that's not problem solving, it's not analytical. It's like, you know, you go for a hike and you sit in the woods or you sit in nature. You've all these experiences. We go places and we just kind of sit and we just kind of just, we're kind of taking it all in. 
That's a contemplative mind. So I think there's a lot of value uh, for us to recognize experientially when we're in a kind of contemplative space. And I think much of like, if I put it in very secular terms, um, one of the things that the Dharma has helped me do, and one of the things that I try to do and I strive to do, is I what kind of what kind of a life do I want to live? I actually want to live a contemplative life, where I'm open to ideas, um, I'm open to things. Um, I'm much of the time I'm not sure what to do. Actually, that's okay. You know, it's 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 a much different way of living. It's a much different kind of philosophical approach to things. Um, to have that kind of and I think the Dharma is really, uh, that's what it's helping us do is trying to be more contemplative, more curious, more open, more not so clinging to our views and our opinions, a lot more like, hey, actually, I don't really know. There's a lot of I don't really know. I'm not really sure. Which helps us live more in the present moment. These kinds of experiences. Does that make sense? So that's really the third this third task. So uh, we'll, we'll do a practice here in a few minutes where, so we, again, we've worked on, so the body and the breath of the bracing life, overcoming our reactions to the feeling tones and liberation. So now we're in the third foundation of mindfulness, which the term, which is a really complicated term, is chitta. Uh, it's a very, it's probably one of the most important, one of the most dynamic words in the entire Buddhist lexicon is that of chitta, which is usually translated as heart-mind. Um, but remember, liberation, Buddhist liberation, if you will, happens in the third foundation of mindfulness. The, the liberation doesn't happen in the body. Liberation doesn't happen in the feelings. We don't have a lot of agency over those things. So what we, where our agency starts to begin is to liberate the mind from these destructive forces. Because the, the body and the feelings is very much hardware. It's all hardwiring business. Third foundation of mindfulness. Now we're getting into the territory where, where we actually have software. We have some agency now. And this is where liberate. So what we're and even if you look at the text, the, what gets liberated is the chitta. Chitta gets liberated. Uh, it's called chitta vimuti. Uh, vimuti means to liberate, to be free from these destructive forces in the mind. We see the mind that's liberated. That's nibonic, that's cool, that's non-reactive. And we just keep developing that, cultivate that, maintain that. That's that's much of the work. Does that make sense? And so when you sit every day, however, when you sit, this chitta nibbana experience is happening a lot of the time, and maybe you're not noticing it. So my encouragement with this is to just see if you can start to learn to pay attention when you're like, wow, man, like I'm fucking cool right now. I'm not reacting. Oh, it's so nice to not be reacting. It's so nice to just be ordinary. And sometimes, you know, that then again, that's a very neutral Vedana kind of neither ordinariness that we overlook and we don't appreciate it. So a lot of times Nibbana is probably present, but we're not mindful of it. We don't even know it. Not by our own fault, because because this nibbanic enlightenment has been elevated so much, we're we're always looking up towards it, going where is where is it? And it's like it's right here, right now. You knucklehead, it's happening. So embrace that, cultivate that. Dare I say, enjoy that. Right. 
So, you know, Nibbana is just a natural property. And people who aren't Buddhists and don't know anything about what I'm talking about today, everybody has Nibbana experiences. They just don't necessarily classify them that way. And I think when you start to learn to recognize and to classify and to feel into the present moment experience that's Nibbanic, um, a lot of joy, a lot of ease, a lot of contentment available to us, a lot more than we might realize. And I think that that's a very encouraging idea. I remember years ago, I was right before the pandemic kicked in, actually, in April of whatever year it was, I was at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, sitting a retreat, a study retreat with Stephen Batchelor, who I've known for years. And um, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. So uh, we scheduled a time to meet and to talk and to hang out a little bit and to kind of check in. And uh, we kind of were chit-chatting a little bit. And one of the first questions he asked me, because he knew I was kind of teaching for a while, he asked me, he said, he said how are you with your teaching? He goes, do you feel like you're finding your voice as a teacher. And when he asked me that question, first of all, I was like, I have no fucking idea what he's talking about. And secondly, I was like, what an awesome question. So we kind of talked about that for probably 45 minutes or an hour. And so that's our question. Am I finding my voice as a person? Uh, and so the question, the question becomes, is there a singular voice I can speak from no matter who am I talking to? Because you notice when you talk to this person, when you talk to people at work, you talk in a this kind of way. When you talk to this person, you talk in that kind of way. And usually our friends, the reason why people are our friends is when we're with our friends, we're able to talk in the more authentic way. But is there a way, and this is the question and a good question, what would it be like if I could just kind of speak in the same way, no matter who I'm talking to, I'm using the same voice? Because we notice internally, we have one microphone and we have you know, 95 different players back in the head that are fighting to come through that microphone. One microphone, one voice, what would that actually be like? Wouldn't that be nice? And so that this, this you know, topic, you know, this is not something you ever really even hear about. But I think it's so important that if you reframe, if you think about the teachings of right speech in the context of what we're talking about now, um, that path factor comes alive in a really big way. And this is largely, I think, no one to blame here, but this is um, the reason why we find ourselves in this dilemma is largely because Buddhism has for the last really 2,500 years has largely been reserved to the practice of people who live in a monastery. So one of the programs that I could talk about a little bit at the end, if you like, that I, that I think I did an interview with uh, Beth about, I have a program that Stephen Ambassador and I have developed called Ethical-Based Mindful, uh, Mindfulness-Based Ethical Living, which is really trying to bring to life uh, some of these aspects of the Dharma that have been kind of uh, the monastic trainings have kind of not really addressed because if you're if you're if you're a monk and you're living in a monastery, there's kind of a bit of an assumption that you're practicing that anyway. So, what would be a secular application? Secular really just meaning non-monastic is the most basic definition of that. You don't live in a monastery; you're a secular person, which I would imagine is all of you. And that you have to deal with talking, you have to talk, your, how much of your struggle, how much of your life, how much of your dukkha, honestly, is rooted in trying to communicate with these other humans? Most of it, half of it, 
So with mindfulness-based ethical living, we're trying to bring these kind of path factors into the practice a little bit more and more of a forefront and more and more of a, a shift of like a secular application where we we live in a complicated world and you know and, and communication even extends to the goddamn texting and the posting and the comments that we make. And if you look at what's going on there, I think a, a big aspect of the problems we have in our society today are, are of a digital nature. Like there's things that people will text on some stupid little screen that they would never say to somebody's face. Um, so thanks, Tommy. You are opening up a tremendous can of worms here, but a lot of the work that I'm trying to do right now in, in our Secular Dharma Foundation and this program with Stephen is trying to, to bring out programming and retreat experiences where we can actually really have these kinds of conversations in a Dharma context because they really... Uh, haven't been had. What I love about the four noble truths, really, it's funny you said they're sort of out of order. What I've and I agree from a cause and effect standpoint. But what I love about the first one being first is sort of just saying life is painful. Is it gives you sort of permission to then speak from a voice that acknowledges that you know, and and, and so much in the real world, you're not to even admit that or to speak from that. But you don't have to tell everybody all the details about your pain and all, but if you can just speak from a place that acknowledges that to be in a body in this, on this work, in this, on this earth is painful. And so now having that as the first truth is like, okay, if that's the rule, now it's just about how, how am I going to relate to that pain? And it gives you light, it gives me license to speak as from that truth you know, whereas really for 40 years until I got into the Dharma, I wouldn't, I would never have even admitted that statement. Like to say, like, kind of like Beth was saying earlier, but positivity, you know, to even admit life is pain or has pain would be like, oh, you just, you know, you've it's almost be- considered a bit rude. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You bring it. Don't, don't bother me with your bullshit. I got my own problems. Like they say, don't invite a Buddhist to a cocktail party. They'll just just ruin the party. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. And so part of what we do in in mindfulness based ethical living, especially on these retreats is part of it is like looking at these tasks, like Duca, how and and actually getting in groups and doing these mindful dialogue inside dialogue things like let's practice put voice to Duca on purpose like we're going to make a space for that like let's if 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 the dukkha of your life had a voice what would it say you know and that's very vulnerable that's very intimate that's very but then what we see is like oh wow actually we're all we're all hiding our mess you know we're all we're, we're all sleep we're all sweeping all kinds of shit under the rug and pretending like everything's okay which is kind of a reaction in a weird sort of way uh, we would maybe call that denial. I mean, largely, I think the cultural relationship that we all have towards dukkha is one of denial. And so let's talk about it. Let's, what, would, what would it be look like to actually be on a retreat, be in small groups? Let's actually, let's actually just do this stuff. So practicing the four tasks through the venue or through the through the chitta, through voice, through voice, through voice, which is really a very, and then talk about, well, how do we react? How do we, so there's, um, there's so many different ways. And I love sitting silent retreats. I've, I'm not trying to, 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 to minimize or dismiss the retreat culture. I mean, I teach retreats. I just sat one. I'm going to teach one next month. 
but a different kind of retreat where we're um we're we're we're, we're putting voice to this more of a community more of a dialogue rather than i'm the teacher with all the answers and you're the student that's trying to get away from this top-down model which uh, doesn't always um doesn't always address some of the things we're talking about right now i have a question about that um do you, are there any cultures or communities putting like 12 steps aside but like larger cultures do you think do a better job at this than we do in the west where it's always this this division between like productivity where we we have to be happy and you know we're not able to share these things and you know where we're spending much of our lives every week is there a culture that does this better do you think I yeah definitely mostly what it is it's more of a, the, the culture it's not it's not about like location like did the Japanese do it better than us or did the Europeans do it better it's more of a historical nature indigenous communities did it better than modern communities like you know they, they, they like even Native American they have all these council processes where a lot of a lot of indigenous tribes whether it's Aboriginal or African or Native American the indigenous way of thinking totally valued this stuff way more where they would actually take time and sit down and and do this stuff we're now now basically the way that it shows up in modern society is that of and i think it's great this is really kind of what psychotherapy is but we have to go to a trained professional and pay exorbitant exorbitant amounts of money to get that where we just aa does it a little bit but yeah i think that I'm sure there are other societies and cultures that do it better than us. I don't know for sure because I'm not an anthropologist, but I do know that the societies and cultures that tended to have done it more skillfully are societies and cultures of uh, of of more of uh, Aboriginal or you know historical. You know, the, 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 maybe at one point we that it seems to be as modernity grows, we get less and less skilled at this. Does that make sense? Like I've been trained a little bit in council work, which is an Aboriginal, different American, Native American, different tribal uh, mentality, put a lot of emphasis on these kind of council. Like one of the things we do at Mindfulness Based Ethical Living is we do these council processes where we kind of set up a container so that way we can have these conversations where we're not trying to fix, we're not trying to solve, we're not trying to reassure, we're just creating space. We use this word a lot, holding space, for people to say what needs to be said and just letting it go from there. So it does happen, um, but it's definitely not status quo. You're not gonna see people, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of this in restaurants or, you know, this is not usually people what they do, you know, you know even the family gathering at the dinner table for holidays is usually an all, you know, an, an, a conversation or an argument about politics and religion, you know, and and candidates and all that stuff. So we. We we do chit chat about a lot of frivolous shit that's just really not that helpful. I mean, I do it. So I think we almost have to create spaces for this to do it intentionally. So when we talk about this fourth, I, I won't be. I mean, if I were to do this, uh, if I were to really get into the eightfold path or the fourth truth, fourth foundation of mindfulness, this would probably be need to be its own four hour standalone thing. So usually when I do this, we kind of we, we, we address upon this, but this is really now the conversation starts almost reverts back to where I started today is actually the practice is ultimately about how we live our life. And the Eightfold Path, the cultivation of the Eightfold Path is really about how we live our lives, which includes other people, which includes society, you know, politics, social issues, religious, like how do we 
how do we relate to the world in a way that's skillful and how can we actually use our practice as a vehicle to create positive change in the world you know and that's really that to me that's an ethical mindfulness so we look at the ethical path factors which we talked already a lot about right speech which is the first one the other one right action which is really not the best translation samakamanta the word for action is kama or karma but the word isn't karma or kama it's kamanta which means more like vocation what do i feel called to do which feels more like the last one and and then and then the right livelihood um is more about livelihood means uh, the word is ajiva which means for life so it's not really like my job it's really about survival you know how do i survive and how we survive in modern american society as, as you probably have learned uh, the primary mechanism for survival is the acquirement of money. You don't got no money, you're not going to survive. And then the question becomes, well, what do we do to get money? Well, there's lots of things that we can do to get money. A lot of things, if we want a lot of money, a lot of things that we have to do to acquire money are things that, A, we're not interested in doing and things we would never want to do. And the only reason we do them is because we get paid. Uh, and how do we make money uh, in our society or culture in a way that doesn't harm other people. Um, and th th this right here alone, this one thing, we could talk about this for hours. So uh, part of mindfulness-based ethical living, part of bringing these path factors, these sila path factors out of the monastery and into the secular world is really one of, the, in my current work, is the thing that I'm kind of most interested in. How many of you struggle about, uh, so you struggle talking, communicating to other people, right? A lot of dukkha there. How about money? How complicated is that mess? Right? And there's an entire path factor. That in, and to not see that as part of a Dharma practice, I think is actually a bad move. You know, what is our relationship to money? Um, most people don't even ask themselves that question. You know, do I... Am I greedy for money? Do I feel so? A lot of people in, in, in the Buddhist world, it's very common, is a lot of us have a kind of poverty mentality where we think that money is sort of evil um, or we shouldn't have it. Or uh, So there's a lot of value in just sitting and just reflecting on like, gee, what is my relationship to money? You know, Am I scared of money? Do I, do I just not really want to deal with it? Do I just hope that I get enough to... So it's a very, very complicated thing. But in many ways, that's what that path factor is. Yes, it, part of it is what we do to get it. Part of it is our job. But really, the primary energetic mechanism that even sits at the bottom of livelihood or survival is really um, money. Um, and uh, again, even that can kind of sometimes be rude to talk about like you know you, you mentioned that comedy people don't want to hear about that it's like you know it's not really a polite or socially accepted to ask somebody how much they make see how much debt do you have how much credit card debt do you have what are you doing to pay that off like you know like we don't we, we don't and we don't even you know we don't even usually talk about we, we usually don't have anywhere you know usually what we do is we just argue with our partners about money that's about it but there's unless you go to a career or go to a, a money advisor person these, these we don't even have these kinds of conversations except for maybe with your accountant at the end of the year and they're like man you need to get it together <laughs> um so we have a little bit of time left so any any questions or anything you want to ask or say about that big can of worms we can address it a little bit and i know beth might have some closing announcements and i 
I have a few too. So um, probably this would be a topic for another day because it's such a big one. But I do want to highlight that this is this is where this kind of work is kind of heading. You know, how do we? What is the duka of money? How do we react about money? How do we feel free about money? So using these first three tasks. So what you want to do is you want to take these first three tasks and then apply them to each path factor. What is the dukkha of views and opinions? How do you react around views and opinions? How do you feel free around views and opinions? So you can apply these first three tasks to each path factor, and then you get a whole elaborate system. And that would, of course, be a, a whole topic for a whole other day of practice, I think. And I prefer to do this stuff in space because there's lots of writing and exercises we can do to really um, almost use the Eiffel path as a kind of inventory for how we live. Thank yeah, you. and also just to say, I if you want to find out more, I we, we I recently had somebody update my website. My website is davesmithdharma.com, and everything that I do is pretty much on there. It's not one of these big websites. It's kind of pretty clean and simple. Um, so I do teach retreats around the country. Chris was at my retreats at Southern Dharma. I do have a retreat in August, which there's a couple of spaces left for. If you want to come out to Big Bear, California, you can email me there. And also this mindfulness-based ethical living program, which starts in January, which is two seven-day retreats. That's also on my website under retreat, so you can email me about that, which is really, in many ways, to some degree, today is a bit of an advertisement for that program, because that's really what we're doing in MBEL, is we're really taking uh, a lot of this stuff and applying it to a broader spectrum of experience. It would be a rich experience, two seven-day retreats in an online program. Stephen Batcher will be teaching some of the online stuff. But email me off my website. I'm not really busy. I'm not that popular. Get me now uh, and I will email you back. So I always tell people, like, if you email me, there's a really good chance uh, I'll email you back and I have a mentoring program and I have a lot of different things you can participate in to whatever level you like. So, so feel free to reach out if you want to further uh, and uh, work together in whatever capacity you see fit. So thank you very much, everybody. I will certainly hope to see you somewhere down the road.